from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Folklife Today. I'm John Fenn, the head of research and programs at the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. And normally, this is where I'd say I'm here with Stephen Winnick, the center's writer and editor, and the creator of the Folklife Today blog. But I'm not actually with him. That's right. John and I are only together in virtual online space. And that's because the Library of Congress is closed to the public as we record this. Employees are working from home. And on top of that, John and I live in Maryland, which is under a stay-at-home order as we record. So we can't be in the same room. And that means that you might very well hear some ambient sounds of our homes and the homes of our guests during this podcast episode. Indeed. That's part of what we're all experiencing. Um, when we were first sent home, Steve and I had an unfinished episode of this podcast in production, so we first had to figure out how to get through the process of editing it, and we're happy to say that we did, um, with the help of John Gold, our engineer. And then we had to figure out what came next. That's right. Luckily, we had some staff members pitching us some interesting blog and Facebook ideas, and I'm a news junkie, and I was pretty impressed by how quickly a lot of TV news shows pivoted from having guests in the studio to having guests join the show from their homes on laptops or mobile devices. And I realized these blog and Facebook ideas could actually be made into a podcast episode as well, as long as we were able to record people remotely somehow. So I did some research and I found a platform that allows us to record our remote conversations. And here we are. So Steve mentioned blog and Facebook ideas, and those are, of course, for our companion blog, Folklife Today, and our Facebook page. Which you can find at blogs.loc.gov folklife and facebook.com American Folklife Center, all one word. And these ideas came from our first two guests, AFC staff members Michelle Stefano and Alina Magoni. Michelle is a folklorist in the research and program section, and Alina is a reference librarian in the archive section. Welcome to the podcast. Hey. Hello. So each of you had an idea that we're drawing on in this podcast, and I think chronologically Michelle's came first. So tell me about the idea you had for a couch series on Facebook. Yeah, so it was, I think, uh, my God, time is blurry, but it was like that middle of March week when we were all, um, you know, asked to stay home and work from home, which I'm very grateful for. And, you know, obviously the library is closed, AFC's closed, but I just felt we needed to convey, uh, for those who may not know, that the AFC in many ways is still open, uh, in, in, in particular with respect to um, all the rich online resources that we have, including full collections that have been digitized and placed online. Uh, and so that from a couch anywhere in the world, you can uh, still do research and, and learn more about, you know, again, our rich collections at the AFC. So my immediate answer to that at the time was that that's pretty much what we did on Facebook anyway. That is an item or collection a day that you can listen to or enjoy while you're staying at home. So that's a that's a cue. All you listeners, um, visit and please like our Facebook page to get 
this kind of information that Michelle and Steve are talking about. Right. But but more than that, Michelle's idea did make me realize that we could be better about telling people that we were still working and telling them where all our online collections live. So I wrote a blog post about that called The American Folklife Center is on the Job. And that actually gives you a kind of map to our collections online. So look for that on the blog as well. And Michelle's idea also got us both thinking about the fact that all our staff members have favorite collections. And that idea was really brought home to us even more when Alina pitched her notion. So Alina, tell us about the blog series. Yeah, so the idea came really organically after speaking with Michelle and seeing the blog post that not only are we trying to connect people with our collections, but we should be connecting people with each other and with our staff. And it's really isolating working from home because I usually see my coworkers every day and I'm lucky to talk to them maybe once a week via Zoom. Um, and WebEx conference calls. So this was just a way to make sure that we were in solidarity with one another and using the collections for what they were meant for, to bring people together, to lift spirits, and to bring us joy. So um, the pitch was, why don't we ask our staff what they've been listening to and what they've been working on just to connect us again with our patrons, with researchers, and with the public. Excellent. So, Alina, I guess you're going to be the first to tell us what you found and were inspired by in our collections. Yeah. So I'm originally from Southern California and I'm Chicana, Mexican-American. So I've had a longing for my homeland and culture since I've relocated to D.C. And what's always brought me some sort of comfort is the fact that I can peruse our collections for Spanish language materials and materials from California that remind me of home. And that's actually part of my job, uh, being a Latinx specialist, trying to poke around the collections to see exactly what is there and how can I bring them to the forefront and connect our researchers with them. So at the very beginning of self-quarantine, which feels like a lifetime ago, I called my mom with one of these finds. So I remembered how I had previously been rooting around the Sidney Robertson Cal collection for California. And I had actually listened to sampling of the recordings that just really brought me a lot of joy and I got a huge kick out of. So these were recordings uh, that are available on our online presentation, California Gold, Northern California Folk Music from the 30s. In the online presentation, there's a particular set of three paso dobles, which means double step, that are recorded in Carmel, California. And they've lifted my spirits before. So I was listening to this and they were recorded at the wedding of Ben and Rosa Figueroa on February 18, 1939. And I, can I can't help but imagine what that wedding must have looked like at that time. Um, I imagine myself there. Of course, it's a dream wedding in my idea. That it's under the stars. It's super temperate. There's white papel picado. Um, so basically, my Pinterest dream board of my own wedding. And I, I just, it brings me a lot of joy to think about these people celebrating so long ago, um, singing songs in Spanish and things that I actually kind of um, know about. So in, in your blog, Alina, you talk about this phone call you had with your family where you share some of these recordings, right? So tell us about that. The first recording that I spoke with my family about and I sent to them was Atotonilco. I was unfamiliar with the song, but it just sounded interesting so I sent it to my family and to my surprise, my aunt knew all the words and she started to sing along. It just was really funny just to go back and forth 
And I'm genuinely shocked and floored that my family knows these songs. Well, that sounds like a pretty epic phone call. Um, you also mentioned one of my favorite collection items, which is Cielito Lindo by Lottie Espinosa. Um, and she came from the community that Sidney Robertson liked to call Spanish Californians, that is, people whose ancestors were in California when it was a Spanish colony. And she had a really colorful life. And according to Sidney Robertson, she'd, be, she'd been married at the age of 13 to a man who was already elderly, from whom she learned a lot of songs. And she also had uh, 11 children. And Sidney mentioned that she thought it would be unkind to ask too many questions about that, given the age of her husband. So how did you come across Lottie Espinosa and her recording of Cielito Lindo? And what did it mean to you? So I was kind of taken aback that my family knew words to songs. So I wanted to find music that resonated with me that I know. And Cielito Lindo is a ubiquitous tune that is deeply tied to Mexican and Mexican-American um, identities, nationalism. So it was really the first thing that popped into my mind. And when I searched it, I was super surprised to find Lottie Espinosa's rendition. So I like listening to it immediately brought a smile to my face. She is an interesting singer, to say the least. And it's also one of the first songs that I learned in Spanish. And it reminds me to this day of growing up and being four years old and making up words to the song since I didn't actually know <laughs> the entire <laughs> lyrics. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I have a couple of renditions of my own in um, Spanglish. And so the song itself is actually sung at weddings, funerals, birthdays, and even famously at the World Cup. And its message in its chorus is canta y no llores, or sing and don't cry. And it's super fitting during this epidemic and pandemic. Its verses are dedicated to someone dear to the singer, a beautiful woman who he tells, please sing and don't cry, because singing brings joy to the hearts of all. It was also famously sung in the streets after the 2018 earthquake in Mexico City by volunteers. And some may call it a pseudo national anthem um, just because everyone truly knows it and they don't know how they learned it. They don't know when they learned it, but they just know it by heart. That's great. Um, and thanks for bringing that song to us, uh, Alina. So let's listen to Lottie's version of Sileto Lingo. All right, that was very cool. Again, Lottie Espinosa with Cielito Lindo. And 
whenever we talk a lot about this collection, I like to point out that our retired colleague, Kathy Kirst, has written a book about it, and I was lucky enough to help edit that book, and it's in press right now. And in her book, Kathy points out that Lottie Espinosa added a couple of unusual verses to that song, including the one about nuns and friars who sleep in the same bed together, but only because they're afraid of ghosts. Well, sounds like a likely story. Um, <laughs> Alina, that's not the only version of that song you found in our collections, though, is it? No, actually, I kept on searching, and I was really excited to find an instrumental version played by a Puerto Rican group called Los Amantes at El Romance Club. Um, and it was recorded July 3rd of 1977 in Chicago, Illinois. Los Amantes plays a polka medley and rancheras and merengue, and they actually play an instrumental version of the song in the style of merengue, and it's just really soulful and funky and makes you want to get up and dance. So it it really brought joy to me, and I think everyone should listen to it because there's a really beautiful sentiment in the middle. The performers say in Spanish, this is dedicated to all of my brethren, all of my Mexican and Mexican-American brethren, um, with lots of love from your Puerto Rican friends. Con mucho cariño por parte de los boricuas. It's really nice and it's a really sweet sentiment to hear and to know that we're all in this together. That's wonderful, Lena. Let's listen to a clip of that song as well. So having Alina introduce a piece from the Chicago Ethnic Arts Project collection is great because it also allows us to bring in Michelle, whose work during our stay-at-home period has been largely with that collection. So Michelle, what have you been up to? Yeah, so uh, I've been digging into that collection for over two years now because we've been doing a lot of work uh, at the AFC with, with collaborations, exploring collaborations in Chicago that's inspired by this collection. 
In particular, I've been working on a, a new story map. And this one is going to be focused on the blues and jazz venues and musicians that are represented in the collection. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So I guess that means you've been listening to a lot of blues. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So this story map in particular will be um, kind of structured into sections or chapters based on many of the jazz and blues clubs. And so, yes, of course, there's just so many recordings of sessions that the folklorists who were uh, responsible for uh, documenting mainly African-American traditions within this Chicago ethnic arts collection project. Yeah, so I mean, they they went, they hung out in nightclubs and 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 listened to blues many nights and days during the week. And so, yeah, that, I mean, long story short, that's what I've been listening to: a lot of excellent, soulful, passionate, and even funny at times uh, music. Excellent. Sounds pretty fun. Is there someone who really stands out that we can share with listeners on the podcast? I first got to say, I've been listening to so many different groups and musicians and harmonica players. For instance, Junior Wells, he was the featured musician and singer and harmonica player at one club on the South Side in Chicago called Teresa's Lounge. But then there was also, I've been listening to Lefty Diz, the, the Lefty Diz Shock Treatment, Magic Slim and the Teardrops. But I guess awesome. it, it would be nice maybe to listen to Mary Lane, who we're so lucky was recorded in this collection because she's still doing it. She is wow. still a singer and musician. And I, in fact, just last year, she came out with a new album, Traveling Woman. And because of that, was interviewed with NPR, who calls her a, a musician and singer that's been flying under the national radar. Uh, and she needs a little more appreciation. So again, it, I think it's wonderful that we have recordings of her and she grew up in Arkansas and as part of the great migration moved to Chicago around 19 uh, late 1950s and she performed alongside Howling Wolf, Elmore James, Magic Sam and Junior Wells uh, at Teresa's Lounge. Perhaps uh, this one song if you don't put something in. Fantastic. Let's hear that.
And that was Mary Lane with If You Don't Put Something In. And Michelle, I know there are a lot of interesting field notes in this collection as well. So what do you got? Yeah, so like all the notes and audio logs and final reports of of the many folklorists that worked in the collection uh, or the project in 1977, uh, all that information brings such rich context to all the collection items. But with respect to the African-American communities and, and the documentation of all sorts of cultural traditions and of course, blues and jazz music, the two folklorists responsible for that were Beverly Robinson and Ralph Metcalf Jr. So I've taken a lot of nice quiet, time to read through all their notes and logs and even, of course, the final reports from the project. One great example is um, Ralph Metcalf Jr. in his uh, final report says that in 1977 Chicago, today's blues thrives in a network of local taverns, lounges, and clubs. On any given weekend, at least 40 taverns feature blues bands throughout the city. At least half that number provide entertainment seven nights a week, and therefore there are at least 40 active community bands, uh, blues bands in particular, in Chicago today. Some artists tour often, some occasionally, some never. Some of the more successful artists do not work in Chicago at all since they can make much more money out on the road. And it costs 6 to $10 to see Buddy Guy and Junior Wells in concert when they're out on the road. But for local clubs, it's about a dollar. Going into Beverly Robinson's field notes, she really gets into some of the differences within the community, perceptions of and uses, if you will, of these clubs. And so many of them were on the south side of Chicago, but not only, I mean, they were also in the northern parts of the city and some are still going today. But as she notes, the many that were on the south side are where you can witness the struggle, and now I'm quoting her, of musicians working for a dime a day, but keeping the spirit of a sound intact. These places are not necessarily Teresa's Lounge, where practically anyone can sit in and claim they are playing the blues. They're more like Florence's and Josephine's lounges, where black community members demand top performances. These are places where the musicians and audience interact as one, and no one plays for or to, but with. Uh, and she notes that that's an important distinction in African-American culture. And I, I thought that was a very powerful quote, and I can feel her emphasis in, you know, from based on her research or going around to a lot of these clubs. So, Michelle, one more thing interested me in that collection that you mentioned, and that, that's a tradition of Blue Mondays. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Within this circuit, and again, music's playing, you know, every night with these many taverns, bars and, and lounges. There were these days dedicated to the blues, and in particular, one was called Blue Monday. And I think it's best to start out with the definition that Lefty Diz himself mm-hmm. uses. Ralph Metcalf Jr., the folklorist, interviewed Diz outside of the checkerboard lounge. And actually, I think that that interview took place in a car because there's some photos of them talking in a car. In any case, Lefty Diz explains that Blue Monday is pretty self-explanatory. It's after a hard weekend, and I'm quoting him now, Everybody's partied down and, you know, you're trying to recoup for the rest of the week. And so on Monday, you go down and hear a little blues, lift your spirits and have a good time. So a lot of the recordings are from different clubs during Blue Mondays. And this is during the day as well. They're not just evening and nighttime performances. And I think that's uh, funny. It's like how you have to unwind after your hard weekend. I know. (laughs) know? That's That's very funny too. (laughs) 
and, and, you know, listening to these recordings from my couch, you know, yeah, they, they kind of rejuvenate me, you know, in this, you know, these tough times. So it does work. But um, Ralph Metcalf Jr. was noting that at the time of the project in Chicago, mainly it was the checkerboard and Teresa's lounge that were still keeping this Blue Monday tradition going. And even visiting artists and musicians would, you know, tap into this Blue Monday and also Blue Sunday circuit. And so Blue Sunday from, you know, based on our collection was also happening um, at Florence's Lounge. And they had a Blue Sunday that would go from 2 p.m. down to 7 p.m. And I'm sure it stayed open after 7. And we have lots of recordings of Magic Slim and the Teardrops playing there. But also this married duo, Queen Sylvia Embry and her husband, John Embry, who plays guitar. And Sylvia would sing. And so uh, we have a great recording of them. Uh, I found a love on a late Sunday in May 1977 at Florence's Lounge. Fantastic. We'll hear a little of the Embrys, but first to our two guests, Michelle and Alina, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thank you for having me too. All right, take care. Take care. Bye. So once again, that was Queen Sylvia Embry and John Embry with I Found a Love. And we're going to have some more guests in a minute, but we've also been exploring collections and working on them ourselves while we're at home. So what have you been up to, Steve? Well, a number of things. As you know, we're always thinking of new blogs and podcasts, and with the new normal that's setting in, we really think people will be spending more time at home, not just in the short term, but in the medium term as well. I mean, I don't see myself going to a big sporting event or stadium concert for the rest of 2020. Although smaller gatherings may come back sooner, I really think an adjustment toward a greater amount of home time is likely for our culture for a while. So we're thinking of ways to do more from home and ways to engage people who are at home. And I think that's taking up a good deal of your time as well as mine. Absolutely. We have several initiatives we're working on. It's probably a little premature to talk about them on the podcast, but in the time between recording it and releasing it, we'll be making some announcements. And as always, the best place to find those is on our blog at blogs.loc.gov folklife. So Steve, that was a little vague. What specific projects can you tell us about? For the first part of our stay-at-home working time, I was working on a couple of articles for No Depression magazine. One was for the print magazine, and it was about the By the People project, which our last podcast episode was also about. But the other was for the online version, and it's a new idea we've had where No Depression is going to be featuring items from the AFC archive in a feature called Roots in the Archive. And the first of those articles is about a set of 19 recordings we have online of Zora Neale Hurston singing songs and describing folklore in the 1930s. 
So for those who might not know the name, Zora Neale Hurston is best known as a novelist, especially for Their Eyes Were Watching God. She was part of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 1930s, but she was also a trained anthropologist and folklorist, studying at Columbia University with Franz Boas. She did a lot of folklore collecting from the mid-1930s on. So what was the context for these recordings you're listening to, Steve? In the late 1930s, she joined the Florida Writers Project as a folklore collector, and in 1939, they got word that the Work Project Administration's Joint Committee on the Folk Arts, which was a national committee, was sending folklorist Herbert Halpert on a Southern recording trip. Hurston wrote a proposal for him to come to Florida and have her act as his guide to the African-American community. The proposal was accepted but modified because it was the segregated South. It would have been a scandal to have a white man and a black woman traveling together, so they had her go on ahead and scout talent, and Halpert came along a few days later with Stetson Kennedy to do the actual recordings. That doesn't sound like the most effective plan for fieldwork. Right. It turns out a lot of African-Americans were happy to hang out with Zora and perform for her and then would be hard to find when the weird white men from the government showed up later. But it did mean that Halpert had some discs left over and felt it was worthwhile to record Zora's favorite songs directly from her. So she sings a variety of songs, including railroad work songs, social songs, and a song that was sung as part of a card game called Georgia's Skin. All right, so what's your favorite? Well, my favorite is a song called Uncle Bud. It's a weird and mildly dirty song, but she self-censors, so there aren't any real swear words in the version that we have recorded. But the thing I really like about it is the introduction. And forgive me for explaining it before we hear it, but I play it for students and other audiences all the time, and most people don't hear it well enough to get what's happening. So to set the scene, Halpert is recording her, but there are at least two other people present. Stetson Kennedy, who was Zora's direct supervisor in the Writers Project, and Corita Doggett Course, the head of the Florida Writers Project. We know they're all there because they all speak on some of the discs. So in business terms, she's with her boss and her boss's boss and the visiting executive from corporate that they're all trying to impress. Exactly. And after she explains the song, Halpert asks if Uncle Bud would be sung before the respectable ladies. And she is emphatic that men wouldn't sing the song in front of respectable ladies or in front of any woman but a joke woman, which means a woman associated with bar rooms, gambling houses, and brothels, women of low reputation. And then there's kind of a pause because you see Zora's problem. Yeah. If it would be only sung in front of women of low reputation, how did Zora hear it unless she was one of those women? Exactly. And the pause goes on for a while, and then someone speaks up. And I actually think it's Stetson, uh, though it could be Dr. Halpert. I knew both of them many years later, but the voice is indistinct. But the person says, but you heard it from women, right? And then Zora laughs with relief and agrees, yes, I heard it from women. So let's hear Zora Neale Hurston with Uncle Bud. Uh, what, is it sung before the, the, uh, the respectable ladies? Never. It's one of those juke songs. And the woman that they sing Uncle Bud in front of is a juke woman. And, uh, of course you heard it from women. Yes, I heard it from women. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uncle Bud's a man, a man like this. He can't get a woman going to use his fist. Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud. Oh, I'm going to town, going to hurry back. Uncle Bud's got something I sure do like. Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud. So that was Uncle Bud. 
And I put a little teaser blog up about this at blogs.loc.gov slash folklife. So look for a recent post about Zora. And from there, you can link to No Depression Online, which is where the full article is posted. Great. Thanks, Steve. And now we've got another guest with us, Maya Lerman. And Maya is one of our archivists at the American Folklife Center. So hi, Maya. Hi, John. Hi, Steve. Hey, Maya. Good to have you. Could you start off by describing some of your typical job activities at the American Folklife Center? So as an archivist, my main goal is to help with providing access points to researchers to help discover our collections. We organize collections in a way that makes sense from the collector's perspective and for access so people understand what the collection is about. And we also describe the items and the materials in the collection in order to create finding aids and to enrich our collection catalog records. So working from home has shifted that work because I'm not able to see or access many of the collection materials that I, that I normally access, but I'm still finding ways to do this work of improving access for researchers. And once through delving into specific recordings from an online collection that we have to improve access to subjects and keywords for researchers to access those materials that are, that are online already. Amazing. So what have you been working on lately? Prior to the pandemic, um, I'd been working on the John Cohen collection, and I'd finished processing it, and I was preparing for the finding aid to go online. So if you aren't familiar with, for those who aren't familiar with John Cohen, he was a folk musician, an artist, a writer, a folklorist, and really an amazing guy. And the John Cohen collection is rich with his artwork, photographs, manuscripts, recordings and film projects. So over the last few weeks, I've been able to research and write about more aspects of John Cohen's life. So this kind of work can enrich the finding aid. For instance, I've been working on um, a deeper biographical note, which will go into the finding aid and catalog record. He, he passed away in September, this past September 2019. So I've been reading different obituaries, articles, and I've also been delving into some of his specific passions, the Caro people of the Peruvian Andes and the abstract expressionist movement in New York in the late 50s and 60s. And also um, he recorded many albums with his band, the New Lost City Ramblers, most of those are on Folkways records, now Smithsonian Folkways. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading his liner notes because he's got extensive liner notes on, on those albums. And he's also produced albums on, on Smithsonian Folkways. So, so those resources have given me a broader understanding of his life. And as you know, um, our blog, Folklife Today, has a lot of mentions of John Cohen, um, a lot of resources about him, including a concert and an oral history interview and we'll probably have a post when this finding aid goes up. So where, where are we with the finding aid? So we're pretty close. I would say within the next couple of months, it's a bit dependent on staff availability because everything is shifted right now because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. It's been a process to know who's able to do what, but I'm hopeful that it will be going online within the next month or two. 
Yeah, we're really looking forward to the extra access that will give us. And of course, we definitely understand the strictures that our colleagues in other divisions and our colleagues in AFC are, are working with given the pandemic. It's, it's a little weird, but that's also what this podcast episode is about. So I understand you're also working on another collection and you even brought us some audio from that. I did. So I was going to play a fiddle tune called Fly Around My Pretty Little Miss. And I chose this because you can hear both the fiddle tune, you're right in the middle of the, the performers. And you can also hear in the background, if you listen closely, you can hear someone calling square dance calls. Great. Let's listen to it. Again, we're here with Maya Lerman, um, uh, archivist at the American Folklife Center, and she just introduced us to that sweet fiddle tune. Um, what collection was that from, Maya? That's from the Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Project, which was a survey that was conducted by the American Folklife Center in collaboration with the National Park Service. Um, it was done in 1978, and it documented a range of folklife including music, old-time music, religious music, um, food waste, dance, tales, farming. And so the whole collection went online um, this past September in 2019. And the photographs and field notes and manuscripts and recordings are accessible from anywhere with an internet connection. So what that work involves is getting a deeper understanding of a collection that I've already been working on and processing and then learning more about the collection and writing about it. And it's really been an amazing opportunity to just listen to full recordings of, um, of from a collection. A lot of times in our work, we just don't get that chance to, to listen to whole recordings because we just have so much material that we're trying to process and arrange and describe and make accessible. So it's been a great opportunity for me to like learn more about this Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Project, something that I'm also interested in because I, I play bluegrass and old time music. So this region of the U.S. has is, is been a, an area of interest for me for a long time. So what I've been doing is listening to the recordings and writing summaries of what what they're about. And there's also logs that the field researcher compiled. So I'm looking at the blogs and I'm listening to the recordings and writing summaries of each recording that will go online. Say so it'll make it possible for people to find recordings in the collection by searching on tune titles or subjects that you mentioned in the summaries. Is that how it works? Exactly. Yeah. When, when possible, I'm going to add song titles and, and kind of keywords, as you, as you say, um, so that people can search for things they're interested in or songs they're interested in. Well, that's, it's such important work, Maya. And as you said, you have the time to do this now in ways that you can't when we're on site processing in such different ways. 
So thanks for that. You're welcome. But before you go, you had another clip from that collection you wanted to share with us, right? I did. Yeah. So this is part of an interview with the fiddler Tommy Gerald, who is a big deal in the old time music community because of his great fiddling and banjo playing and singing. And a lot of people who are getting into old time music, like in the 70s and 80s, were going to, they heard about Tommy Gerald because he was known for his, his round peak style and his proficiency on the instruments that he played. Um, And they would go learn from him. So he was really generous with his knowledge and the tunes that he knew. And he received an NEA National Heritage Fellowship in 1982. So I'm not sure if people really know that that we have Tommy Gerald material in this uh, Blue Ridge Parkway Folklife Collection. So in this recording, he's describing the music and dances that he grew up with. And I thought it was interesting because he talks about sort of the early origins of old time music in the early 1900s, which was when he was growing up. And he also talks about cotillion dances, um, which is interesting because It was sort of a French social dance, um, which was a forerunner of the square dance. Great. Let's hear Tommy Jarrell. You talked about then, were they, can you tell me about them? Were they, like, how many people there were, what kind of music there were? Well, we had, to start with, there wasn't nothing but just the banjo and the fiddle. I I guess I was 12 12 years old before I saw a guitar. And you were born? Born 1901, March 1st. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lady brought a guitar down there and her and, her and my daddy played some together, some kind of sacred songs. That was Now that was in the Round Peak section. That was, yeah. yeah, that was up at our old home place. Uh-huh. That was about 19 and... Uh, well, I'll say 12 anyhow. Yeah. Somewhere right along about that time. So for the first dances, you remember they just had banjo and fiddle. The music. first dances I recollect seeing them dance with, they called them cotillions. Cotillions? Cotillions. Mm-hmm. Now how did they do I don't know how they. I don't know how to spell that now. I can't spell it for yeah. you, but it's cotillion. It's kind of like that tune of daddy that he called Richmond Cotillion. Uh-huh. And you know he calls he calls real on that while he's playing that. Have you ever heard that? I'm not sure I have. Maybe I'll have to listen to that in a few minutes. And... Well, he calls real and plays the fiddle all at the same time uh-huh. on the on the record. Is that uh, when they danced a cotillion? Cotillion was that in a circle or lined up? Well, yeah, they chose their partners, you know, and and they they all lined up and they circled around halfway around the house and then back. Yeah. Then they swung their partner. And then the first reel I recollect, the first one I ever learned to run, I, I, don't, I don't know what they called it, but anyhow, the first lady swung to the right, the man to her right, and then she swung her partner and on to the next couple so she went all the way around. So John, now it's time to find out what you've been listening to. Well, the past week or so, I've been spending time with what we colloquially refer to at AFC as the Real Collection, but the full name of the online presentation is Hispano Music and Culture of the Northern Rio Grande, the Juan B. Real Collection. So what piqued your interest about that collection? Well, last year at about this time, I was invited out to the San Luis Valley in Southern Colorado to help out as a guest instructor for a program called the Art and Rural Environments Field School. 
It's hosted by the University of Colorado Boulder, and for the past few years has focused on communities in the very area of Colorado where Rael made many of those recordings in the collection that we have. In fact, we stayed in these beautiful old adobe houses on the land that the Rael family has lived on for seven generations. Ron Rael, a prominent architect, artist, and scholar of all things adobe, as well as a descendant of, of Juan B. Rao, was one of our hosts. And it was great to hear him talk about the land and the diversity of people who have called this area home over the past several thousand years. It's a complicated history, so we can't really get into it here. Um, and the collection we have at the AFC offers a, just a small piece of that history via audio recordings. Great. Um, what particular treasures did you find in that collection? Well, Juan B. Rao was a folklorist originally from that area and a faculty member at Stanford. In the late 1930s, he started a research project looking for all the music to popular ballads, weddings, and miscellaneous songs, at least 20 of which occur in the various folk plays of the region, as he wrote to Harold Spivak at the Library of Congress in November 1939. As some listeners may know, Spivak was in charge of the Archive of Folk Song at the time, the predecessor to the archives at the American Folklife Center now. Rao was writing to see if he could get a hold of an instantaneous disc cutter and some blank discs to support his field work out in Colorado and New Mexico. Ultimately, using a combination of equipment on loan from the Library of Congress and another institution, Rao recorded 136 tracks across 36 discs. This amounts to about eight hours of field recordings of traditional music from Spanish-speaking communities in the area in the early 1940s. The full collection is available online at loc.gov slash collections. Yeah, it's a great collection. And I think a lot of us staff members dip into it and, and listen to some of the great material that's on there. So you brought a particular song for us to hear? Yeah, I managed to choose one out of the bunch. Um, it's an instrumental tune called Vals de Coyote, or Coyote's Waltz in English. Rael made a handful of recordings with Adeado and Adolfo Chavez, the brothers who we're about to hear. The recording was made in Antonito, Colorado, where Adeado lived and where I stayed last year. Adeado was 68 at the time and plays violin, while Adolfo, who's on guitar, was 65. He lived about seven miles up the road in Romeo, Colorado. Here's the tune. So again, that was Valse del Coyote from Adelaido and Adolfo Chavez, chosen for us by John Fenn. Thanks, John. Sure. And John has actually picked just one more piece from the Rael collection to play us out. But first, we should thank all our guests, Michelle Stefano, Alina Migoni, and Maya Lerman. We know it was a little weird and experimental to join us from your homes. So thanks, everyone, for being good sports and adapting to our strange circumstances. And we also want to thank our engineer, John Gold. He didn't do his usual setup or recording in the studio because we can't even go to the studio. But he may very well be involved in post-production work on this show. 
And we want to thank our colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who will have to figure out how to deploy this podcast while they are all staying at home. Yes, we miss you, John Gold, and also Mike Turpin and Jay Kinlock, and we send extra thanks to everyone at the Library of Congress. The library has really done a great job of making it possible for us to do our jobs from home, and we really do appreciate having jobs and having colleagues who do their jobs so well under such difficult circumstances. I fully agree, Steve, and we want our regular listeners to know that we're working on future episodes along the same lines as this one, including one where we talk with Thea Austin about the Homegrown Concert Series and all the webcasts. So now to take us out, some more music from the Juan B. Real collection. This is the Chavez Brothers again with Amado Trujillo playing Los Bienaventurados, which means the Blessed Ones. The lyrics begin, Blessed be the readers, advertisers, and subscribers, which suggests that this was originally newspaper poetry. That highlights the fact that a large part of the Hispanic population documented by Real was literate in Spanish, largely through homeschooling. Excellent. Let's hear Los Bienaventurados, the Blessed Ones, and may you all be blessed as well. Until next time. Aventurados hay los lectores y los anunciantes y los suscriptores, los agentes, todos del pueblo, cuidad siempre que nos traten con puntualidad. Bienaventurados sean los maridos que ya no vacilan fuera de su nido, los que a sus esposas tratan con cariño, lavan los trastes y limpian los niños. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.